Guardian Unlimited. Hello, I'm Alison Benjamin and this is Environment Weekly. Coming up on this, our first show in 2008, John Vidal talks to American financier Bob Hertzberg, whose company Renewable Capital is set to revolutionise green power by investing millions of dollars in solar technology, electric cars and wind farms. The last revolution you talked about in Silicon Valley, that was run by the engineers. This one's run by policymakers. 70% of the oils in the world today is controlled by governments. It's politics, okay? The residents of the tiny island of Egg in the Hebrides tell us how they are pioneering eco-friendly power in Britain. And Lucy Siegel tells us about the Observer's Ethical Awards. This is Environment Weekly from Guardian Unlimited. With me in the studio is John Vidal, The Guardian's Environment Editor, and Leo Hickman, the paper's Ethical Living Editor, to discuss this week's environment news. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hello. And here's John Dennis with this week's headlines, which, with oil prices rising above the $100 a barrel mark, are dominated by energy stories. Kent's billion-pound coal-fired power station gets green light. Soaring price oils wheels for green power. Every UK home to face 15% energy price rise. Scientists take on brown over nuclear plans. Consumers may foot nuclear bill. So the big story is whether or not the UK government will back nuclear power. You may remember that last February, the government was ordered by a High Court judge to repeat a public consultation on its energy plans. Now the government says it has extensively consulted and it is about to publish final proposals on nuclear. It's widely expected to give the go-ahead to a new generation of nuclear power stations. But environmentalists and a leading group of scientists and academics warn that it could be illegal for the government to back new reactors without knowing first how to dispose of the radioactive waste. So, John, what do you expect the government to announce? Well, we know they're in favour of nuclear power. This is the rubber stamping of a political decision made about three or four years ago, I would say. It's really going to be how they can make it easy for companies to raise a lot of money on the stock exchange to build a whole new generation. What we don't know is how easy they're going to make it and therefore how many stations are going to be needed. We've heard possibly up to 20 or so. Why is the government so in favour of nuclear now, Leo? As John said, it was about three or so years ago they were sort of giving out the signals that nuclear was back on the table after a couple of decades of being kind of persona non grata in the sort of energy world. The main reason really is that with the old or current generation of reactors slowly sort of winding down, that there's a big fear that by about 2020 we're just not going to have enough power literally to sort of keep the lights on and that we're going to have to quickly invest in some new form of energy generation to meet this gap. So nuclear is being seen as the, the sort of great hope, principally because it, it's put forward by the government, at least, that it is climate-friendly or carbon-neutral, and that's where there's some major sort of question marks in my and many other people's eyes, really. Shouldn't they be investing a lot more money in renewables? Um, shouldn't they be following Germany's lead, for example? I think Britain is going to make a decision which it will look back on years to come as being completely uh, from the dinosaur age. Germany is showing that you don't need nuclear power. It's a bigger economy than ours. They're going down the route of, of, of renewables. They're well on top. By, by 2020, they're going to have 50% renewables, 40-50%. Britain is just ignoring this completely. It's ignoring a revolution which is happening right under our eyes. 
If it wanted to do it, it could do it just like that, just like, like now, within 10 years, 15 years. And are the government going to have a, a legal fight on their hands? I don't think they will, because I suspect that once bitten, twice shy, they don't want to go down another very, very embarrassing uh, High Court case with uh, Greenpeace. They will probably have worded their bill in such a way that it would be very hard to take it to the courts and to actually get a, get a proper judgment. So I think that Greenpeace will bow out, but there will be an enormous debate over the next six months or more about all the hurdles which government and business were going to have to cross before they actually get to the point of building these, these stations. But as you were saying, Leo, I mean, we do need an energy mix. There is going to be an energy gap. I mean, how do you have a low-carbon world and there's going to be more and more energy? How do you meet that demand with just renewables? Well, I think when you look at that argument, you have to think about energy saving, for example, and unattractive and slightly boring issues such as of lagging your loft and things. And we could make vast improvements in um, the way we save the amount of energy. So using the current amount of energy that we generate, but just, you know, not being so wasteful with it. And that in a stroke would, you know, delete the need for us to sort of ramp up all this sort of energy generation around the country. And I think that would be my first thing to tackle a bit in the way that Germany are, are trying to do at the moment with their vow to sort of improve 5% of the housing stock's insulation over the next sort of 15 years or so, whatever it is. That would be where I'd like to see this energy put in by the government rather than just going immediately down this kind of super shiny kind of new nuclear power station route. There's a very great fear that, that if the government does go down the, the nuclear route, then actually it, it'll work against renewables, mm. that all the energy, all the money, all the research is going to go that way. It's not going to go back into renewables. So just as renewables lift their head above the parapet, they get it cut off again. Well, this topic has, not surprisingly, polarised bloggers on our climate change blog. Nuclear power leaves a legacy behind that future generations will have to deal with. Must we continue to mortgage our children's futures in order to continue to enjoy our profligate old ways? Nuclear power admits almost no carbon, new designs of reactors mean a disaster like Chernobyl is impossible, and stocks currently sitting at Sellafield could keep us going for decades. Anyone who opposes it is an enemy of planet Earth. Less nuclear power will in reality mean more coal because wind power can't generate enough energy and coal-fired power stations release a 100 times more radioactivity into the environment than an equivalent nuclear plant. But another blogger suggests, like Leo, we should concentrate on slashing energy consumption by making things like insulation and double glazing compulsory. You can join the debate at blogs.guardian.co.uk slash climate change. Islanders on egg in the Hebrides have taken energy matters into their own hands and are plotting a very different route from government. Later this month, its 87 residents will get all their electricity from a solar, wind and hydro-generating station on the island. Maggie Fife, secretary of the Isle of Egg Heritage Trust, explains why they've gone green. My name is Maggie Fife and I live on the Isle of Egg, which is a small island part of the Inner Hebrides Small Isles. And I currently work as secretary of the Isle of Egg Heritage Trust, which is a partnership between the Scottish Wildlife Trust the Highland Council and the local community of the island. We took ownership of the island on the 12th of June 1997. At some point several years ago, the community as a whole absolutely unanimously supported the idea of creating some kind of mains electricity. There's never been mains electric here. Everybody looks after their own electricity supply, which has in the main been through a diesel generator. And the community as a whole decided that if we were going to develop any further as an island, 
it was the one thing that was absolutely essential was to have 24-hour mains electric. It was very clear that any big electricity providers were not going to put a cable in from the mainland because of the cost involved. So we started to investigate ourselves on how we might put in our own supply. And it's taken quite a few years from the first idea to going through feasibility, etc., etc. So the feasibility study showed us that we could put in a system run by renewables, different sources, and the biggest cost involved has actually been putting in the cabling throughout the island because it didn't exist previously. It was costed at 1.5 million. Over the course of a year, we managed to find that funding from a variety of sources, from Europe, from local enterprise companies, from the lottery, from the council and from our own resources. And just over a year ago, we actually began working on the ground. And what we've done is we've put in 100 kilowatt hydro, we've put in four or six kilowatt windmills, and we've put in a 10 kilowatt solar array. Those are all linked together, and there is a large battery bank, and there are diesel generator backups. The project would never have been as big a success as it has been without all the support locally. There have been a lot of people put in a huge amount of voluntary effort. The project itself had so much local support that everybody's very, very keen to see it happen and to see it working. Having a 24-hour reliable electricity supply will make a world of difference here. That was Maggie Fife on the Island of Egg with our Green Campaign of the Week. Leo, is this something other communities could do? Well, of course. I mean, in a way, that the story we've heard just there is shaming the government in a way. So, so this top-down approach where we build nuclear power stations or whatever, and actually you've got this bottom-up approach, which you're seeing with other initiatives such as transition towns, where communities are basically coming together and rolling their sleeves up and saying, you know, why wait for, you know, big government for all this? Let's just get on with it and do it ourselves. And in many ways, kind of micro-generation and other sort of technologies such as that are going to have to be part of this thing we call the energy mix, where all the different bits are feeding in, and, and it's a more efficient way rather than relying on this kind of huge sort of national grid system. I mean, okay, they're up in the Hebrides, kind of the geography and the kind of landscape has led them to have to go down this road. But, you know, it's, it's very inspiring to hear. And it's, it actually shows how, if people in the community do get together, then they can actually do these things themselves. And if you know of any local green campaigns you think we should feature on the show, tell us at blogs.guardian.co.uk slash ethical living. I'm Alison Benjamin, and you're listening to Environment Weekly from Guardian Unlimited. Still to come, news on Guardian Unlimited's Tread Lightly campaign. Hi, I'm Debbie Leori. How about pledging to take no holiday flights this year? None whatsoever. Now there's a real resolution. If we don't start changing our ways fast, there won't be any place left to go, long or short haul. Surely one year off from flying won't kill us. And more on energy when John Vidal talks to US financier Bob Hertzberg about why he's investing big bucks in clean technology in Wales. But first, Lucy Siegel, The Observer's ethical living columnist, is here to tell us about the paper's ethical awards. Hello, Lucy. Hello. I understand the awards are being launched on Sunday. How exciting. Yes, this is the third year. I can't believe that we've got through uh, that many years because it originally started as a a kind of little idea that I had. Then it became my sort of baby. And then a whole kind of team of people has actually made it happen. And it's just become a really, really positive, amazing thing. And the feedback we're getting from previous winners is that this is the one they want because there are a lot of kind of green marketing and advertising awards out at the moment. And they really like this award 
primarily because it's voted for by readers, essentially. Is that what makes this one different from the others? Yeah, and I think it's also the spread of categories as well. We're not just, uh, you know giving awards to the industry we're not you know keeping it specific to one sector we're going across categories and it can be anything from conservation projects right the way through to we have a young campaigner of the year award right the way through to best fashion project and an invention an initiative that's a big award category that we're launching this year so who were some of the who have been some of the previous winners uh, well, we've had a couple of repeat winners with Natural Collection for online retailer. Uh, we've had independent retailers uh, such as Infinity Foods in Brighton who had their trophy in their window for a long time, which is very gratifying. Mm. Um, and then through to Terra Plana, which is a shoe company. Uh, Stratheric Primary School won young campaigners last year. And then we've got, you know, big names like Al Gore who won an award last year. So it's a real spread of winners and a spread of categories. And what's the purpose? Is it really to raise awareness about these these good works these good ethical companies out there and and good projects that are happening I don't think it's so much to raise awareness of the issues because I think you know a lot of people are really up on the issues and I've heard quite a lot about climate change recently It, it really is to focus on what can positively be done and what we can achieve as individuals and as groups you know without major funding sometimes you know some of these are very very small concerns and it's about giving these people uh, and organizations the profile that they deserve and some of the um, ideas are just clever you know and they're things that we want to really bring to uh, the wider public's attention. The one I really liked last year was the Lavender Project in Carshorton. That sounded fantastic. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a really lovely project um, and it kind of captured you know, the attention of, of readers and of our uh, expert panel as well. Um, basically, uh, Sutton, Carshorton used to be the biggest lavender growing area in the, in the world at one point, I think. And now it's, you know, uh, there's been a lot of building projects, a lot of roads, um, and it's very near the M25. So they've kind of reinstated the lavender fields there. And it's a real grassroots project, if you'll uh, excuse any pun. Um, and you have members of the local community coming out, sowing the seeds, sowing the plants, and then actually harvesting it as well and putting it into products which they sell uh, for the benefit of an environmental charity. And it's just a really nice, well-thought-through scheme, and it really involves a huge number of people in the local community. And what are some of the prizes that are on offer, apart from raising the profile of the winners? Three of the awards have cash bursaries attached, so as well as the, as the glory of winning one of our beautiful sustainable trophies, you also get uh, money for the project, and that's for the Conservation Award, which we found was a lifeline to some of the smaller projects in particular. The uh, Young Campaigner Award, um, and there is a bursary that would be put into uh, education and progressing the idea of the Young Campaigner. And then finally, the Ethical Initiative of the Year, which is a new category this year um, in association with Jupiter Ecology Fund. Uh, And that will be for an actual product or service that has been uh, designed by somebody or a group of people. And we will actually try and put that either into production or just try and progress the idea. And you mentioned that the public vote, but you also have a panel of experts. Yes, so there's 10 categories. Um, Mostly everything is nominated by the public, by readers. Um, And then we have some categories that are reader voted, so it's purely done on votes. And last year we had 7,000 votes. So, you know, there was a lot of them to count. Um, And then we have um, the other panels where they're nominated by readers and then they go to an expert panel, and that includes academics, sustainability academics, 
academics, uh, eco-architects, eco-designers, I mean, you know, right across the board, climate change experts. And then we have a celebrity panel. And at the end, they all come together and they pick who they think should be the final winner. And who are some of the celebrities this year? Well, we've got some very nice names this year. We have got Colin Firth, who's been involved in the fair trade movement for a long, long time and is, uh, you know, has a real knowledge about, about um, some of those processes. We've got David James, who is uh, the UK's only green footballer, as far <laughs> as I know. Uh, we have Natalie Imbruglia, the, uh, the pop singer, who's uh, just embarked on her own eco-makeover of her own house. I think she's doing a TV series as well. So she's, she's um, developing a lot of knowledge as well. Uh, Elle McPherson is joining us. Uh, we've got David de Rothschild, uh, who runs the Adventure Ecology Programme. So really, really nice mix of, of celebrities and experts. And I hope they'll all learn a lot from each other like they normally do. Great. So where can people go to get more information about uh, whether they want to nominate someone or you know, whether they want to enter? Well, it's all in the Observer magazine Sunday, but it will all be on the website as well with very clear instructions about how to enter and what to enter. And that's www.observer.co.uk forward slash ethical awards. And I think there'll be a link from the Guardian Environment website as well. I'm sure there will be. We very much look forward to featuring some of the winners on the show later in the year. If your New Year's resolution is to try to live a greener lifestyle in 2008, a good place to start is to join Guardian Unlimited's online community, Tread Lightly. Weekly pledges enable you to reduce your own CO2 emissions by doing things like switching to energy-efficient light bulbs or turning down the heating. In its first three months, Tread Lightly has helped almost 4,000 people save more than 22 tonnes of CO2. That's the equivalent of turning off a coal-fired power station for a whole nine minutes. Jessica Aldred is here to tell you about the first pledge of 2008. So it's a new year and it's about the time that lots of people are starting to make resolutions. We're asking Tread Lightly readers to pledge to fly less this year. Now flying is a really big debate on the environment website and in the bigger picture lots of people are saying that we shouldn't fly at all but on the other hand until there's prohibitive legislation or it costs more people aren't going to stop flying altogether. Now Tread Lightly's ethos is all about people being able to take some sort of small action which is better than doing nothing at all. So last week's pledge was about people taking one less long haul flight this year so instead of flying to say Miami people could go to the Mediterranean see how much carbon they could save by doing that. This week's pledge which is going to be up on Friday is going even further and it's asking tread lightly readers to consider traveling by train rather than plane at all so instead of taking a flight to Amsterdam you catch the ferry and you catch the train so if you do feel very strongly about this you should go and join the debate on our blogs the address is blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash ethical living or if you want to sign up to last week's pledge which you can still do or this week's pledge which will be up on friday you can go to guardian.co.uk forward slash tread lightly that was jessica aldred and here's what you've been saying on the blogs about flying less my husband and i gave up flying more than 10 years ago and actually our holidays are getting better every year we spend less precious non-work time traveling spend a lot less money and somehow enjoy the whole process more this year 11 of us went 50 miles away by public transport and camped we had mostly good weather and a real blast of a holiday even going to europe on a flight seems to take almost 12 hours to get there if travel to the airport check-in and transfers are included which is a whole day out of the travel i would prefer to spend that actually having fun I haven't been airborne for almost seven years. It hasn't cramped my lifestyle one jot. I can't get over the number of people who claim to be concerned about climate change but still feel the need to take foreign holidays. 
Either they really haven't joined the dots between their holiday activities and the global climate, or their outward concern is just an act designed to portray themselves as caring middle-class liberals. Either way, I wish they'd give up the pretense and come right out with it. My travel plans are way more important than the environment. Leo, are you planning to give up flying or do you have any other green New Year resolutions? Well, I've just recently moved house and I've inherited a rather messy, forlorn-looking garden. So I've already rolled my sleeves up this year and have, um, in about um, two weeks I'm planting a very long native hedge to try and encourage wildlife back into the area. I think I suspect it's already there, but I just need to coax it out. So I'm putting a lot of effort this year into overhauling the garden. And John? I'm going to become the Wangari Matai of the Kariog Valley in Wales. I'm going to plant trees, <laughs> plant fruit trees. Uh, the, the best thing about trees is that they, they have brilliant fruit, and the more of it, the better. So uh, apples, damsons, pears, the whole lot. Great. And are you going to get bees? Yeah, I think the bees will just come. <laughs> and what about the big green stories for 2008? I mean, we had the UN climate change talks in Bali and Al Gore sharing the Nobel Peace Prize last year. What do you think will be grabbing the headlines over the next 12 months? I'm hoping the big green story will be the US elections. I mean, I'm praying that that become the environment becomes a big a big campaigning issue. Fingers crossed. Personally, on a more sort of entertainment base route, I'm quite looking forward to the the London mayoral elections because I know Ken Livingston and Boris Johnson for sure are going to provide quite an entertaining um, campaign between them, and I'm sure. Um, um, what Ken Livingston has been doing for London's environment will dominate talking points. It's, it's a real test of environmental awareness, actually, mm. in the public, because Ken has, is staking everything on the environment, the broader environment, and uh, he's, he, he's, he's done a lot. And Boris is just nowhere near there yet, but I suspect he's going to ramp his mm. thing up. It's very interesting. And... Um what are the other big stories, John? Well, I, I agree absolutely. The U.S. president, you know, he, he or she uh, will follow Kyoto Bali. I mean, that's really, really deadly important. We probably won't know actually until after uh, until two thousand and nine. Um, but meanwhile, I think we're going to see a lot of um, uh, the rise of protest again. I think the Heathrow um, and and all these runway extensions and things are going to really boiling up now, um, and especially in 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 West London. So who knows? Who knows? Now we've been hearing a lot about solar energy recently. The Chinese are planning to build the world's biggest solar generating facility in the Gobi Desert, and in the US, solar technology is being dubbed the next dot com. Investors are putting millions of dollars into startup companies that could potentially make it as cheap to produce electricity from sunlight as from coal. Bob Hertzberg, founder of Renewable Capital, is one of this new breed of financier with a big stake in a solar company in Wales. John Medow spoke to him in Las Vegas. John? Well, I started asking him if the uh, smart money really is on clean technology. Absolutely. I, I think it's just at the beginning stages. Uh, I think in, in the United States, uh, where I hail from, uh, you know, the next president, irrespective of a Democrat or Republican, are going to substantially increase the amount of commitment to renewable energy. I just think at $100 a barrel for oil and uh, the impacts on the globe, it's only, it's only the beginning. And unlike the dot-com era, where there was, this is all a new industry, this is, uh, there's a lot of money on the table for energy. And what kind of money is, is, is going into this uh, new technologies? Well, it's tremendous. We moved to the UK because we saw that the markets in the UK were much more sophisticated than the US. But in the last year or so, the markets in the US are heating up. It's, it's just billions, and it's going to be trillions uh, in the next three or four years. It's going to really be fantastic. Can you tell me how much you're putting in or your company is putting in? 
Well, no, we're, we, we've invested pretty substantially in a number of different investments through renewable capital. But, you know, both my partner, Ed Stevenson, and I are the founders of this company, G24 in Cardiff. And, uh, you know, we're now just uh, going out and talking to investment community. But all the money in the company so far has has been ours. And uh, it's, uh, it's pretty substantial. And uh, we're pretty excited about it. So what are you doing in Cardiff? Well, in Cardiff, we have a 187,000-square-foot facility there on 23 acres, a gorgeous site. We're manufacturing, the first in the world to manufacture this new thin film that is photovoltaic. It makes electricity in low-light conditions. You can use it indoors. You know, people so joke, just explain. why did you go to Cardiff? I said, because it works in the rain. <laughs> but this is photovoltaic energy. Photovoltaic it it, energy. It doesn't need sunlight. It just needs light. Just needs ambient light. You can be in the rain. It'll work. You can work in a, under a light bulb inside your in your kitchen. It'll work and create electricity. And that just gives tremendous opportunities. You don't have to just be in, uh, in the south of France or in Greece or some sunny place in the Mediterranean to be able to use solar. You can use it in Cardiff. How efficient is it? Well, it, it's efficient. In the solar business, everything's been measured by its top speed, like an automobile, like a, a good uh, Lamborghini or a, or, or, or a BMW or, or a Jaguar or something. But this is about how much energy for the user. So, so you actually get more energy in a 24-hour cycle because the current kind of solar technology that's glass-based only works in the brightest of conditions and doesn't work in low light. So we're not nearly as efficient in bright light conditions, but on a 24-hour real-life cycle, we're very efficient. And quite frankly, we're focused on the mobile market, phones and tents and So how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you see it being used? You see everybody in Africa having a mobile phone and, and, and having it charged up by solar? Or? That, well, here's the issue. Everybody in Africa is getting a mobile phone, and, and they have no source of power. 4% of the folks in Rwanda access to the grid, 5% in Congo. They're dying for sources, so they've got to walk a half a day and spend a dollar to charge their phone. And these aren't just kids, uh, you know, texting their friends. These are fishermen and, and farmers and hunters and, and, and business people that are using the phones for business transactions. If, if you study that the area in India and Africa and all in China, uh, mobile phone markets are just huge. And, and so we're providing a, a mobile source of power that's easy to use and that's much less costly than batteries or diesel fuel. But you mentioned backpackers. I mean, how would how would a backpacker need solar energy? Well, you know, I mean, this is whether it's for a kid going to school to use their iPod or mobile phone. A backpacker could use it for GPS system if they're out. I mean, just, you know, everything. Think about the military applications, right? Today, the soldiers all around the world, everything is electric. These guys live with, you know, pounds and pounds of AA batteries on their back because their night visioning systems and their GPS systems and all their devices are all controlled by electricity. We are a very mobile society at every level, whether it's rural or in the developed nations, and mobile source of power is very important. You're not the only company doing this. I mean, there's lots of others piling in now, aren't there? There should be. Are you kidding? The amount of power you need to operate the world if we're really going to move off of fossil fuel and into renewables. Is the price coming down? Sure, they're coming down. Sure, they're coming down. We're we're much less expensive than anybody else in the market today, which is another advantage we have. But but in addition to that, yeah, sure. And it's going to come down dramatically more as there's increases. So... I'm a believer in fixing the environment and dealing with this climate change issue. I'm, I'm gripped by it. And so, to me, the more the merrier. You could have 10,000 factories like mine, and there wouldn't be enough to fulfill the demand. Do you think there will be? I mean, are we seeing a real revolution? Yes. Yes, you're seeing a real revolution for a number of reasons. Geopolitical reasons. There's a convergence of three things. You know, the last revolution you talked about in Silicon Valley, that was run by the engineers. 
This one's run by policymakers. 70% of the oils in the world today is controlled by governments. It's politics, okay? And you have a convergence here of three things. The left and right have come together on energy independence because some believe it have to do with power of the Middle East or other issues. Others believe it important to be because of the environment. Who cares? They've all come together, whether you're a believer in climate change, whether you're a believer in geopolitical reasons that need, or you're a local politician who's trying to create jobs. All three factors transcend politics of the left and the right, whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans or labor or, or the conservatives, and it's really coming together in a big way. And I, I uh, someone who comes out of government, I see it, and I think policymakers are going to have a huge influence in this revolution. But we see Barack Obama, we see Tony Ban, Gordon Brown here, basically America, Britain, so many countries in the world going down the old nuclear route. I mean, what do you think to that? I think there's some some movement there. I, I personally, it's just my own personal opinion, don't think it's going to be as big as, as you think, because it takes so long to get these things permitted. They take so much capital. And I think that you're going to see a number of alternatives. Look, at the end of the day, it's about money to create energy and that's clean. Can you come up with alternatives that cost less money, that are convenient, and that are clean? People are looking at nuclear because it doesn't create climate change, but it has all sorts of other risks. And so I think that there's a lot of people who are against it. So I personally don't believe it's going to be a big contributor because I think you're going to see a lot of alternative approaches to renewable energy. Energy. Is solar an alternative eventually to, to nuclear? How can it work on that scale? Do you know that, that uh, there's a professor at Caltech, I was at a conference in Los Angeles some weeks ago, and showed a, a part of the Southwest of how much of the land of the Southwest we would need if we had solar energy there to power all the power needs of the United States of America. And it was a little piece of America. And if you just think about it, that people can use this on their roofs, they can use it on their backpacks, on their cars. The sun has so much energy, it's, it's something like well, one-tenth of one percent. I might be off on the number. Some scientists will correct me, but it's a very small number of how much energy comes from the sun that actually is needed to power the earth. If you think about it for a moment, fossil fuel, wood, all that is just simply stored solar energy, right? You use photosynthesis, it grows, we store it at different levels. Fossil means it's just an old dinosaur that died, and that's the energy that was stored from their body, or a tree that's burned, and that's stored energy from that was coming from the sun. All this energy comes from the sun. So if we gave you what the British are planning to spend on their nuclear program, something like $100 billion, you could actually provide the same amount of energy, do you think? Which the Absolutely. Nuclear, you reckon oh, you yeah, could? unequivocally. And how long, how long would it take you to get these stations up? Well, and the larger uh, world stage, I think you'd, you could do it in a very short order in a matter of a few years. If you took kind of like an Apollo-type mission where, where it was just a tremendous focus, uh, you, the presidential candidates are all talking in the U.S. about $15 billion a year. I'll bet you just take this prediction now. It'll be triple by the time uh, whoever's sworn in. Uh, because of the impact of oil. The one thing I've learned, I'll tell you, is I've traveled the world as a former American politician. The number of ideas that people have out there is extraordinary and fabulous what people have done in all corners of the planet. You've talked about 50 of them in the newspaper, and it's extraordinary. And if you just had the capital and were able to commercialize these, the impact on the globe would be tremendous. It's very, very encouraging. That sounds very exciting. How near do you think we are to green energy becoming really commercial, John? We're a heck of a lot closer than we were a year ago and certainly five years ago. And it all really now depends on political will and the economy because this stuff is still a bit expensive and we've got to get get the price down. But the more people who get in, the cheaper it's going to come. It's a revolution. We've just got to accept that this is happening. It's, it's a, one of the big, big, big stories of the uh, 21st century. 
But Leo, isn't there a danger here that we could sit back and just wait for a quick fix from technology to come to the planet's rescue and, and not do anything ourselves? Yeah, I admit that I, I worry about that quite a lot. You hear these sort of wonderful stories about sort of sci-fi technology and people doing things to the sea or building things in the middle of the Sahara or whatever it may be. And I do slightly worry that sends a signal where people just sort of sit back, switch on the TV, book their next flight or whatever and think, don't worry, the scientists are going to dig us out of this hole which we tend to have done in the past um, a little bit. So I do worry. I, I believe that, sure, let's hope they do They do their bit and come up with wonderful solutions. But I also think we have a great responsibility to have to do as much as we can ourselves. I mean, we're all in this together. Everyone's got to sort of chip in. I think it, it's a serious um, miscalculation just to sort of pu- push all your chips into one corner and just hope for the best. Yeah, it's. I, I, I agree. I mean, we must all take into account the way we live and uh, it goes without saying but the the thing is that there's the rest of the world as well <laughs> and uh, uh, we haven't persuaded that many people in in in, uh, in, in to actually change their lifetime I, I suspect that the technologists are going to play a big part in this one one thing i do wonder is whether actually if you look at the rising oil prices whether that's at, there's a bit of a silver lining with that in the fact that ri- rising oil prices do actually almost sort of force investment and people to look into renewables because you know it suddenly becomes economically viable because um, for that reason that fossil fuels are getting so overinflated in price. I, I was reading today that uh, there are pe- already people hedging, I mean, serious people hedging big money on oil going to $200 a barrel within the year. Uh, what's that going to do to renewables? That's going to make them so much more feasible and attractive. It's going to make nuclear power look very odd indeed. Well, that's all we have time for in this first Environment Weekly of 2008. Hope you've enjoyed it. The producers were Ian Chambers and Andy Duckworth. Don't forget to give us your feedback at blogs.guardian.co.uk slash ethical living. Next week on the show, we'll be featuring India's new people's car and why it's horrifying environmentalists. I'm Alison Benjamin. Thanks for listening. Guardian Unlimited.